Chapter 13. I try again. I was getting nowhere since the presidential election. There was no response or even acknowledgement that my many letters had been received. I had to try something else to attract the president's attention. I called Bob Gray in Washington. He suggested that I send the correspondence to the attention of the president's executive secretary, Helen Von Dam, who was with him when he served two terms as governor of California. It was she who, when Reagan was governor, assembled his letters into a revealing book as to his true character, entitled simply, Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. Bob told me that I would be receiving a letter of appreciation for my efforts on the campaign from the president personally as soon as all the commotion died down and after his economic program had passed Congress. I was still waiting to hear from my old friend, but it wasn't thank yous or gratitude that I was looking for. I have always considered it a privilege to serve my country. What I was looking for was action that would get the country back on track again. A selection, friends, from Reagan, B. Actor, A. President by Edward Schofield. Now we turn our attention to the week's news. My name is Kid Midas, the original wave rider, and I'm joined on the line by Long John Silver way down south in North Carolina. Hey. John, why don't you tell everyone the name of our fun podcast that we do? Election Profit Maker. Some people refer to it as EPM. And what's our deal? Well, we uh, we talk about politics. We sometimes bet on political outcomes using uh, the website predictit.org. And, uh, you know, sometimes we don't talk about any of that stuff. Sometimes we talk about fish weirs and college basketball. And um, and what's your favorite thing about the podcast and one area where you could see the podcast needing improvement? Oh, uh, <laughs> my favorite thing about the podcast, just seeing you every week, man. Oh, uh, in terms of improvement, I don't know, man. I think we're pretty good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what, that I'm stunned. Maybe we should ask our listeners what we could do. No, to I'm, are you kidding? No, we can't handle that. The truth. As yeah. they say in that movie, you can't handle the truth. Jack Nicholson says that. You can't handle yeah. the truth. It's a courtroom scene. He's like- um, Yeah, down in Guantanamo Bay. He says it to Tom Cruise. Yeah, a few good men. Yeah, it was. Right? A few good men. Yeah. He says, you can't- The truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. I don't think he says it like that. Well, how does he say it then? I've never seen it. The truth? The truth, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, maybe he does say it like that. I'm telling you, he says no, it like he's that. He's like, he goes, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Right, yeah. I thought it was more like, the truth, <laughs> the truth, you can't handle the truth, governor. Yeah, right? that would be normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Switches into a little, um, uh, what do you call that? A Cockney accent. Have we ever talked about Cockney rhyming slang? Do you like that stuff? You know where they no. Have... Uh, okay. What do you do? You think a few good men would be a good musical? Uh huh. Are they doing that? I hope so. Did you just make up that idea? Yeah. It just John, seems like it might be good. I'm looking for a few good men. A few good men is what I need to solve this crime. Way, way down in Guantanamo Bay, they say the truth. The truth. You can't handle the truth. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. You're like Baby Ruth. You're a caramel nougat chocolatey bar. You can't handle the truth. True American heroes is what we are. Done. We're already yeah. done. 
That's good. Thanks. I like it. I Looking like for it. a few good men. That would be like the big song. Everyone come out and do their high kicks and stuff, right? Yeah. What's that about? Somebody gets killed in the military and they have to solve a murder? I, I can't remember. That's the only thing I know about it. I'm not sure I've seen it. I think it was made by Aaron Sorkin, who made The West Wing. Ah, oh, I think really? Aaron Sorkin was the most damaging pop culture creator of the past 20 years. This is my new I, theory. I don't think that's a hot take. I think a lot of people would probably agree with that. Is that true? Yeah. Just that, you know, people have developed sort of a West Wing type brain. Right. Yeah. Uh, what else? I don't I have no idea what else he did. He uh, he did, did a few good uh, men. The West. Wing. I didn't know he. I didn't know he did movies. I thought he did TV shows. Yeah, he wrote um the Social Network that movie about about uh, Facebook, Facebook, which was a good. That was a good movie. I thought, but that's probably because David Fincher is a good director. You know what's cool? What a million's cool, but you know what's cooler? A, a billion. billion. Aaron Sorkin, he always has these catchphrases that get stuck in people's minds. And didn't he do uh, something that had to do with uh, media, maybe like uh, not broadcast news, but uh, oh, it's like a, it's it wasn't Thirty Rock, it was the other one, Studio yeah, Sixty so- on the Sunset Strip. What is that? What it was called or Studio Sixty? I no, I he did something like on HBO. Yeah, and it's like a it's like a Saturday Night Live type of. Um, it's like AVN is the name of the. Uh, Oh wait, no, the newsroom. That's called the newsroom. Newsroom, the newsroom. Right, and that that was a different sort of dumb fantasy, which is like the Keith Olbermann guy speaking truth to power and making everybody reconsider everything through the through the rhetorical finesse of some doughy white dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that you and I would know anything about that, seeing as how we're two doughy white men doing a weekly podcast trying to influence the course of human history itself. But let's put that aside because you can't handle the truth. All right. Aaron Sorkin. The West Wing. The West Wing. There's a lot of walking in the which, West Wing. Which is the which TV show? I guess it was the newsroom, that clip where um they find out that Osama bin Laden has been killed. Yeah. <laughs> I, sh- I showed that to you once, right? Oh, yeah. I can't remember where I saw that, but it was like, folks, folks, there's not been an attack. We've got some. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, All listeners who want to be delighted, go on YouTube and Google um, newsroom Osama bin Laden airplane death announcement flight attendant. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. It's really like it's really like. John, some people are the same and some people are different. And I'm just going to leave it at that. How about that? Okay. That's all I have to say about Aaron Sorkin. I didn't get, what, I didn't get that. I didn't get I guess it doesn't were... really make sense. That's why I'm not Aaron Sorkin. I mean, say what you will about Aaron Sorkin. That guy makes hit after hit. And he can come up with good terms of phrase. Didn't Aaron Sorkin have a daughter that was on uh, 90210? No, that's... Um, someone else. Some, some other thinking Hollywood of... That's an incredible mix-up. Yeah, all uh, our showbiz listeners are going crazy yeah. right now because they know yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, who yeah. you're talking. Yeah, but about. you know, you remember he he she, he was that he was guy, like a big executive oh, producer of crap TV, right? Yeah, and and his daughter was Donna. No, yeah, was she Donna on? Oh God, hold on. Let's try to figure this out in real time. This is good content. We're not talking about Aaron Sorkin. We're talking about Aaron Spelling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tori Spelling. Tori Spelling. That's yeah. right. 
Aaron Spelling was an incredibly prolific television producer. But the same type of thing as Aaron Sorkin. I think Aaron Sorkin is slightly more high-minded than Aaron Spelling. Okay. But they have the same initials. They do. I mean, there is that. That gets back to my phrase I was trying to get going, trending, which is people are the same and people are different. Okay. I would like to see a musical about Aaron Spelling and Aaron Sorkin being stuck in an elevator during a business conference. The elevator goes down and these two titans of television have to figure out whether what unites them is stronger than what divides them. And it could be called the Elevator Conversation Musical. Mm. And then in parentheses, AS, because their initials are both AS. Think that has legs? Yeah, yeah, no. it does. You don't have to be nice to me anymore. All right, so the name of the podcast is Election Profit Makers. That was a hell of an intro. And in case you don't know, we're one of the hottest podcasts in town. What town's <laughs> that? Podcast town. Population you listening to us. We're the yeah. two mayors of this year, town. <laughs> and we're glad you're here. John, since last we spoke, it feels like we've had three weeks worth of news. Good gracious. This was a really, the variety of news we had this week. Like, let's put aside whether we think the news is good or bad. The sheer variety of news we had this week was incredible. Everything from local Tennessee anti-democratic movements, right? Mm-hmm. that are related to gun violence, all the way from that stuff to spy, secret spy documents being leaked online. Like the variety oh, yeah. of news this week is like really wild. That's right. Then we had uh, Trisha Cotham switching parties in North Carolina. Which you broke on last week's episode in real time. We were trying to yeah. find breaking news about the Trump indictment, which also happened within the last seven days, amazingly. And instead you found this news about a Democratic – North Carolina House Representative. Do you think they timed that with the Trump indictment that they were just trying to do a little news dump there? No, because I think the Republicans wanted to make a big deal out of it. They held a huge news conference, right? Yeah, I guess they did. Yeah. this The Republicans are loving this betrayal. Then you had the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. That was a rare bit of good news. Yeah, that was that was really big. Take, taking the Supreme Court back after 15 years, that's going to be crucial in a state that's... Uh, going to be debating abortion bans and redistricting and things like that. In a swing state. And uh, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut broke his leg. I'm telling you, this past week had everything for news. Everything. And even the showbiz news, John. Super Mario Brothers, they made a movie about this fucking video game, Super Mario Brothers, and it broke a bunch of records. So even in the showbiz news, we have good news. I did and not I'm not even going to get into what happened on Succession on Sunday night. Mm-hmm. No spoilers, but yeah, let's just say there was plenty of news this week. Yeah. Don't watch it. And then we have Clarence Thomas taking all these secret vacations with this guy who collects, like, <laughs> Hitler. Like... That that was the craziest story of them all because and and putting aside all that type of news that we've talked about the scale from domestic to international then we get the, a good dose of high high octane wacky corruption news ProPublica breaks the story that Clarence Thomas has been secretly 
taking trips all over. Clarence Thomas, who says he loves to hang out in America and drive around in his fucking Winnebago with his maniac wife, staying in Walmart parking lots. That was his whole brand. There are all these quotes like, I don't really like going to Europe. I really prefer regular Americans. <laughs> yeah, he prefers regular Americans because he's going on vacation. This guy's like flying to Indonesia on a private jet owned by this fucking maniacal right-wing billionaire who, by the way, has a garden filled with statues of a, of ruthless despots throughout history and then also collects signed Hitler memorabilia. Doesn't collect like books about World War II, like he owns Hitler's teapot. Yeah. He has a copy of Mein Kampf that's been signed by Hitler. Right. And he has linens. He has Nazi linens. Yeah, Nazi linens. Like what? He doesn't just have them. He has them on display. In his house. So do you not understand anything about feng shui? You can't have that shit in your house. I can understand if you're for historical reasons, like I'm going to buy this Nazi bullshit and give it to a museum. And so we can never forget. But to have that right. stuff in your home, are you fucking crazy? OK, so here's a here's my question. It does this mean this guy is a Nazi? Right. This is the big debate. We have the Wall Street Journal and Jonah Goldberg and all these other people coming out and telling us how hysterical we're being just because the guy likes World War II. What? You've never read a history book? Wouldn't you want Hitler's teapot in your kitchen? Wouldn't yeah, how, you want a signed copy of Mein Kampf? How else are we going to remember? Wouldn't you want an outdoor strolling garden with all the statues of all of history's greatest monsters so that you can walk in the evening light and reflect upon man's inhumanity to man? Come on. The Garden of Evil. The Garden of Evil. That's what he called it. The Garden of Evil. Yeah. Do you think he's like, hey, after dinner, would you like to take a stroll through my Garden of Evil? No. No. <laughs> Um, so I've thought about it. I, I bet this guy's probably not a very good guy because he's, he is a uh, right wing and he hangs out with Clarence Thomas and everything. Uh, I don't know if he's a Nazi. Maybe he appreciates some, some things about Nazism, but he's clearly like somebody who he, yes, like Kanye. <laughs> I wonder if Kanye's ever been to his house. Kanye would lose his shit. He'd love it. But don't you think this is just somebody who just has a kind of a gross fetish over things that are taboo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's his thing. He wants to collect, uh, I don't know. Yeah. People saying, yeah, you just want to collect historical things. It doesn't mean that you're into them, but there's no way I would. So I have a bunch of, um, you know, signed basketballs and stuff like that for UNC basketball. Signed and, by Hitler and, and Goebbels and Mussolini. Yes. And Tito, yes. Yeah. And um, I think it would be weird if I also had Duke memorabilia. Wow, you're really – wow. You, but, but do you know what I mean? I think it would be Problematic strange. Problematic analogy alert? <laughs> Go on. Let's see this analogy through. No, the, the analogy is if you, if you collect memorabilia and things like that, you're generally a fan of what you're collecting. I see. You, why would you collect enemy memorabilia is what you're saying. Yeah, I may read about the enemy, but I'm not going to display uh, net from the 1992 national championship at Duke. Um, what if you're a billionaire, though, and money is no object? Yeah, I think, yeah, maybe there's some sort of... I don't know. I guess it depends on how much other stuff he has. You mean what is the what else is in his collection of things? Yeah, I mean, it, let's say let's say let's say one third of his collection is Hitler stuff. Not right. great. 
Okay. Right. Not I'd, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we know the Garden Collection is 100% evil because he named it the Garden of Evil. Right. Is Hitler in that? So the Garden of Evil, the statues in the Garden of Evil, at first when I heard about the story, I was like, this dude commissioned these statues? No, these are statues that were taken, usually smuggled, out of countries where people had pulled down the statues, which oh. is actually really cool to have all, all right. these disgraced statues that have been rejected and torn down in one place. Okay, But I wouldn't want that. I'm, my thing is like, why would you want, and I'm not a hippie, but like, why would you want that energy in your home? This is my house. I don't want to have a garden of evil in my house. Yeah. You could have that at a museum. Like that's a cool thing at a museum, right? And people can learn about history, but there's something about people who turn their museums or turn their houses rather into museums. And I think you hit on something. It's the show off factor and the kind of taboo factor. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you want to see something really fucked up? Look, this is Hitler's teapot. Look at these little swastikas. Isn't that so cool that right. I own this because I can do whatever I want because I have so much money? Yeah. I have a and copy I wonder... of Mein Kampf. You ever read it? This one's signed by Hitler, the author. He wrote it. Isn't that cool? Do you think that there are things that are not being displayed? Almost like uh, – like, Yeah. Okay. So here's the – yeah. It's a gateway. He's got certain things displayed to see your reaction. And if you're like, yeah, man, that's pretty cool. Then and he then shows he's you like, the lampshades. You want to see yeah. Hitler's bones? Right. Because <laughs> I have those. <laughs> yeah. I turned them into a necklace. Right. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think it doesn't mean that he's a Nazi, but I do think it means he's a fucking creep and a weirdo. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with people having opinions about it. Wall Street Journal was like, when that article came out, hold on, let me find this Wall Street Journal editorial. You know I love my Wall Street Journal editorial. Do you have a subscription? Because uh, I couldn't read that article. No, but I was, somehow I was able to log in and read it for free. All right. Wall Street Journal had an article saying everyone was being crazy for for thinking there was anything in the ProPublica piece that was inappropriate. The piece is loaded with words and phrases intended to convey that this is all somehow disreputable. Super yacht, luxury trips, exclusive California all-male retreat, sprawling ranch, private chefs, elegant accommodation, opulent lodge, lavishing the justice with gifts, and more. It's kind of like, yeah, did you really want to put all those in one place again so I could see how bad it is? Like <laughs> Hitler's teapot, signed copy of Mein Kampf. Garden of Evil, where at night, under full moons, he goes out and masturbates to the statues of, of uh, German Mao. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Come on, man. Clarence Thomas is the worst, and his wife's the worst. His wife. And they went traveling all over the world on this guy's dime, and he never disclosed any of it. No. And then people are like, we shouldn't make a big deal out of it because people will lose their faith in the court. The court system in this country, what happened, man? I mean, I guess it's always been terrible. But then you got this judge in Texas. That was the other thing, the judge in Texas with the abortion drug. Yeah. Muffa Pristone. Yeah. Banned it. And apparently he's he's been planning to ban it for a while. He's written numerous articles even before he was a judge talking about uh, these things. So, yeah. Big week. Big, big news week. Big the Twitter news week. falling apart. Uh, oh, yeah. And then we got Matt Taibbi. Good. Matt much, Taibbi and Elon broke up. Elon's mad at Matt Taibbi because he is not going to leave Substack and start publishing his articles on 
Twitter. So, so Elon went and unfollowed him and then deleted all of his Twitter file threads. And then the two of them had a, you know, little argument over private message signal, I think. And then Elon tweeted it out. I mean, what, what, what a mess. Matt went on MSNBC and gained just amazing Yeah. What'd you think about that? Uh, I thought he didn't come off well. I thought the interviewer was a little obnoxious. I mean, he was doing that classic cable news thing of just like, of yelling at you so fast to keep you off balance. So you look like an idiot. Like, I didn't think that was in good faith at all, but I also thought Matt did not come across well. Yeah, I, I would have thought that Taibbi would have been better prepared. Yeah, after 20, 25 years of being a public figure. Yeah, and you know, being in front of Congress just a few weeks ago. Um, right. So, yeah. RIP the Twitter files, I guess. We'll never know how deep the corruption went. Yeah, and RIP Twitter Incorporated. Twitter Incorporated doesn't even exist anymore. It's now uh, part of the X Corporation. That sounds cool. Yeah. X Corporation. What does That's that right. mean? Porno? Uh, no, I did. Elon's obsessed with X. You know, originally um, PayPal was called X.com. Hmm. Uh, then they changed the name to PayPal. And uh, X as in X marks the spot on the pirate map. Here's where your money is. Maybe. Or X as in extreme. Hmm. X as in extreme. Let's think about X. X also means 10. That's true. In Roman numerals, X means 10. Maybe he's a fan of Malcolm X. <clears throat> Probably. He's like, I want to create an online payment system right? that allows anyone to transfer money to anyone else with an internet connection. But I also wanted to honor the legacy of Malcolm X. Now, mm-hmm. I know. I know. I grew up in apartheid South Africa and my parents owned an emerald mine. And probably some sketchy stuff went on there with the blacks. But I'm going to make up for that by naming this payment system after the one and only Malcolm X. Hmm, I wonder if that's true. Yeah. So then SpaceX, he named. He's oh, got right. An X SpaceX. In it. What's the deal with that? And what's what's that all about? I don't know. But then he lost. He so PayPal still owned X.com, but they they didn't uh, use that domain name. And it's really cool to have a single letter domain name. I didn't even know they had those. Yeah, there are a few that got uh, through ICANN and got registered. Uh, so then he actually purchased X.com from PayPal. And uh, yeah, I actually know the broker who handled that deal. How much did he pay for X.com? I do not know, but I'm sure it was uh, seven figures at least. Wow. And so now Twitter is going to be known as X.com? It's just owned by the X Corporation, which is a, a subsidiary of uh, X Holdings or something. I, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to go on with Twitter. I think Twitter, I think it's probably going to be over uh, within six months, Twitter. That's my prediction. My prediction is things end uh, within six months. They declare bankruptcy. That's your, okay, let's make a bet. Yeah, okay. We got to start keeping track of our side bets. We have our Trump mugshot side bet. We've got $20 that Trump will or will not smile during his mugshot. And now you're going to say that within six months, so today is Tuesday- April 11th. You're saying that by October 11th, Twitter will no longer exist? You will not be able to go on Twitter and look at stuff? Uh, well, they will have declared some sort of bankruptcy protection at that point. Um, I don't know if the site will still exist, but I think at that point, Elon will not be involved anymore. 
You mean he won't be running it or he will have sold it? I'm not certain how I'm working. Make sure yeah, you he, word this correctly. This is now we understand I know, how this hard is too it is difficult. unpredicted this to is write too this contract. I, I predict that things are going to be really bad with with uh, with Twitter within six months and that they will be fighting for their lives because there are a lot of uh, regulatory issues that are coming down uh, out of Europe. Germany is looking to find them like $3 billion. And you know they already owe the bank a ton of money. So Why does Germany want to um... – I think it has to do with privacy issues. Oh, OK. Twitter is not respecting its users' privacy? Yeah. <sighs> and then that, that basically, um, you know, Dave Karp – you remember Dave Karp? Who's Dave Karp? Dave Karp. He's the one who famously um, took on Brett Stevens – and uh, referred to him as a bed bug. And then oh, Brett Stevens. Oh my God. He was like a professor who had like six followers on Twitter and he called New York Times columnist Brett Stevens a bed bug and Brett Stevens went nuclear on him. Right. One of the best days on Twitter ever. So he's been writing a lot about this. Um, and his prediction, which I am just stealing, is that um, Elon will be able to because they are going to be taken down by all of this regulatory stuff, that that will be Elon's way of just saying, look, I tried, things were going to go well, but you know, the the deep state took me down. The woke so, mob of the German government took me and, down. And uh, you know, he'll be able to declare victory at that point, even though Twitter will fail and he'll, you know, wash his hands of it. And of course a ton of people will uh, go along with that and believe it. Um but that 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 prediction made sense to me. It's not my fault. One of the great things to say. It's so satisfying to say that. You can't be mad at me. It's not my fault. That's a really powerful. That's almost as pithy as one of these Aaron Sorkin lines. Yeah. <coughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I was All trying right, to think if I've ever said that. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It sounds pretty whiny. Yeah, I guess so. It's not my fault. It's something children say. I probably said it though as a as a childish. Yeah, adult. I mean, lots of stuff is not our fault. Yeah, it's not my fault. You can't stop yelling. It's not my fault, like that. Yeah, or like a little more confident with some swagger, like <laughs> you can stop your yelling right now because that's not my fault. You could say it like that, kind of like a cowboy, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. That horse yeah. was upside down when I got here. <laughs> that's not my fault. Say that sometime. Think about okay. that. Okay. All right. a good bumper sticker. <clears throat> All right. I think we should keep moving because we got a ton of other stuff. John, I got a new sleep machine. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. You hear that? Nope. Oh, it's the human heart sound. I got another sleep machine at a thrift store with the human heart sound. And then it also has summer night. Here comes summer night. This is good. Yeah, I like that one. Peaceful, right? Yeah. My collection of sleep machines is growing, friends. And yet How many my sleep do you have? is not improving. What? How many do you have? Oh, between here and uh, in New York, I think I have five or six sleep machines. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's Good the stuff. end of that segment. Let's keep moving. <laughs> All right. Do you own real estate? Do you want to own real estate but aren't sure where to begin? Would you like to use the mortgage source that is in full agreement with the election profit maker's lifestyle? Do yourself a favor and go to the link www.pdxhomeloan.com to see how much better a mortgage experience can truly be. 
This week's episode is sponsored by Chapel Hill High School grad James Adair and his Homeownership 360 team at Neo Home Loans. The Homeownership 360 team has access to the finest array of residential mortgage programs for just about every scenario. Conforming, Jumbo, FHA, FA, and USDA loans can all be had at the Neo Home Loans platform. Even if you're not presently in the market for a mortgage right now, the mission of the Home Ownership 360 team is to help you create 100% confidence around your next real estate move, even if it's years away. To begin your journey, go to pdxhomeloan.com. Again, that's pdxhomeloan.com, singular, and start accessing the toolkit you'll need to become a successful homeowner. James Adair, individual NMLS license 272766. Neo Home Loans is powered by Luminate Home Loans, NMLS 150953, a wholly owned subsidiary of Luminate Bank, which is an equal housing lender. James is based in Portland, but is licensed in all states but New York and New Mexico. What's the Connecticut show update? Connecticut show update. We have a team of elite Connecticut EPM listeners who I think are actively conspiring to figure out how to make this happen. Thank you to everyone who wrote in saying they would be willing or eager, in fact, to attend a Connecticut show. We're hoping it will happen later this year. And when it does happen, you guys will be the first to know. So keep hope alive for a Connecticut EPM show. Should we get into these listener questions? First listener question concerns Worcester, Massachusetts, because last week we read selections from an essay about hardtack from a listener who wrote for a Worcester-based publication. Sean writes in, so happy to hear an Alley and Happiness Pony shout out on the show. I'm one of Worcester's biggest fans. Like me, those who live in Worcester hate it and love it. There is actually a great substack that is the closest thing to hard-hitting journalism in the city, and its title is Worcester Sucks and I Love It, but I digress. Worcester's nickname is the heart of the Commonwealth as it is in the middle of the state. It is not in the actual perfect center of the state. That title goes to Rutland, Massachusetts, but it is what everyone calls it. Also, Worcester is not Metro West. It is considered central Massachusetts. You were wondering if Worcester was Metro West, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it's West. It's West, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not part of the Boston. It's too far away from Boston. You can't I guess. Right. Uh, there was a time when Worcester was almost the last suburb of Boston, no but way. the Worcester City Council at the time of the construction of the Mass Pike voted that they didn't want a highway to connect them to Boston. There is also another controversy of the indirect route of trains from Boston to Worcester, extending the amount of time it takes the train to go east to west. All this is to say that Worcester is considered central Massachusetts and is about 50 minutes east of Springfield and has an almost non-existent skyline. Also, I run a small comedy production company in Worcester along with stand-up shows. We also produce a Twitch show called Worcestery Council Theater 3K, where we watch and make fun of Worcester City Council meetings live. Get it? Like, also, like Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, I like Worcestery that. Council Theater. Nice. Also, David, <gasps> we would happily let you run all of your Bill Maher-esque political jokes sometime or have you two do a podcast live or both. You're telling me that I would have an opportunity to do some of my famous Bill Maher-inspired political comedy about Worcester and I could do it. Could I do it in front of the city council? Does the city council let performers come in and do and perform for them like the king and the jester in olden times? I could come in and say... 
Ladies and gentlemen and members of the Worcester City Council, it's an honor to be here. <clears throat> I was thinking of you. <laughs> Hold on. <clears throat> it would be like this. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, members of the Worcester City Council, it's an honor to be here and to perform for your pleasure this evening. I was thinking of your city earlier today when I had something called a Worcestershire sire sauce. When did you guys get into the sauce business? What do you think about that? No one. No. No. I was no. thinking about you earlier today when someone said, "What's the worst that could happen?" And I said, "Worcester could happen." How about that? The first one's better. Okay. What about this? Well, here I am in Worcester. I'm looking around. I'm looking for Jeeves. I'm looking for what? That's a deep cut. I'm going to say it again for all the PG Woodhouse heads in the audience. Well, here I am in Worcester. Where's Jeeves? When will he come shimmering into view? Private message to all the PG Woodhouse fans out there. All right. Sean, let's share another Worcester memory. As long as um, that Worcester memory I shared about going to a Slick Rick concert in Worcester really bowled over the listeners. Here's another memory. <clears throat> that same weekend in the 90s, or maybe some other weekend, we also wound up at some kind of rave or dance party in Worcester at like a collective underground arts thing. And I think the place it was, I think it was just called the space. I think Worcester used to have like a indie, I don't know if it was a party house or a gallery or what, I don't can't remember what it was. It was just like a lot of kids dancing to drum and bass. This is a long time ago. This is back when drum and bass was ruling central Massachusetts and all the other four corners of the kingdom of Westeros. And I think it was called The Space. And I can't remember how we found out about it. I think we I think we went to Worcester for the weekend to see Slickrick and then saw a flyer for this like rave. And we're like, oh, a rave. That sounds fun. And we went to it. And then we left because we realized we were like 15 years older than anyone else there. And it's like, well, OK, everyone be safe. We're leaving now. And then I think we went to Denny's. I think there's a 24-hour de Denny's in Worcester. Now, John, I didn't think much of that experience until a year or two later. I was temping at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, helping to grease the wheels of evil. And there was another temp there, and he was from Worcester. He was commuting in every day from Worcester to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Worcester. I once saw Slick Rick in Worcester and went to a rave at a place called The Space. And he was like, I live there. Like, I manage that place. What do you think about that? Small world. Massachusetts is a small world, John. You can't handle the truth. Yeah, it's a small state. Yeah, I guess so. That I think story million, didn't you know, go over New England quite is tiny. as well as I thought it would. What? New England's tiny. New England is so tiny. 15 million people. Come on, New England. Good Lord. More people live in North and South Carolina than all of New England. I've seen patios in Texas that are bigger than some of those New England states. Yeah. You can't handle the truth. Jack writes in, ah, in listening to the amazing coverage of E.T.'s game-winning pick six in the Super Bowl, this is in reference to that um, incredible record I found at the swap meet with the song about E.T., where E.T. goes on to win the Super Bowl for the L.A. Raiders. Did E.T. intercept the pass somewhere behind the 70-yard line? It sounded like the commentator said E.T. was, quote, at the 70 and at the 60 while calling the run back. Since David has that treasured moment on vinyl, he may be able to hear better. I suppose a dedicated Raiders fan had probably never seen an interception return for a touchdown and so could have been mistaken as to how one would be called when scripting the song. Burn. Or perhaps this record is actually an artifact from an alternative timeline in which American football was played on a 140-yard field. 
perhaps by extraterrestrials. Only the numbers can tell us. John, what is a pick six when he says, I was listening to the amazing coverage of E.T.'s game-winning pick six? What does that mean? So a touchdown uh, is six points. And then you uh, can have a point after touchdown where you kick the extra point for the seventh point. So a pick six is when somebody intercepts the ball and runs it back for a touchdown. An interception is sometimes referred to as a pick. Got it. Okay. And the significance of E.T. being at the 70 and at the 60. Yeah. The, the American football field is it's actually 120 yards because each end zone is 10 yards. Uh, but the the yards that the you know, that the most of the play occurs on is a hundred yards and it's 50 yards for each side. And, um, they don't go above 50 yards. The 50 yard line is the center and then 10 yards to the right or the left of the 50 yard line is 40. And then it counts down to the goal line. It's not the 60 yard line. It's like the Raiders 40 yard line. That's right. Yeah. So if they had a pick six, on the other's goal line, you would say they're at the 10, they're at the 20, they're at the 30, they're at the 40, they're at the 50, they're at the 40, they're at the 30, they're at the 20. You would start going back down again. That's right. So in the song, when he says that E.T. is at the 70 and the 60, Jack is on, Jack, you know what, Jack? It must be that the guy who wrote the song didn't really understand American football. Uh, I, yeah. Right? Yeah. I think He so. understood geography. Welcome to Africa, E.T. Welcome to Panama, E.T. He mm-hmm. understands the cultures of the world. E.T., welcome to Jamaica. But he didn't understand football. Good catch. So if it was behind the 70-yard line, where would that be? He probably meant it was the – he was – he. I don't know. Like the 29-yard line. Right. Yeah. He intercepted it at the 29-yard line or the 30-yard line and ran it about 70 yards back for a touchdown and then spiked it. Of course. E.T. touchdown or whatever he says. That's the – that then it, he, that impression yeah. of E.T. is – shows me how much work I have to do on my own impressions. Like okay. All right. This next this ne- this next letter we get is from Andrea or Andrea. Uh, she writes, "While I would categorize myself as an avowed weir head, as in uh, fish weirs, I have also been enjoying your UNC sports dispatches and have learned so much about, especially UNC basketball. I am writing because over this past weekend I saw the movie Air by acclaimed director Ben Affleck." During the movie, I learned that the famous NBA player, Michael Jordan, in fact, played for UNC while in college. I wondered if John was aware of this piece of UNC trivia, and if so, (laughs) if he and David could share their opinions and any memories of that time. This is a very esoteric piece of UNC trivia that Michael Jordan played for UNC in college. John, were you aware of this piece of information? I was aware, yes, and um, I feel like he's probably the most famous basketball player to play at UNC because he's the greatest basketball player of all time on any level. But he's not. But go on. Andrea is in Australia, so I wouldn't necessarily expect her to know. 
Right. But I feel like that might be common knowledge to a lot of people that Jordan played at UNC. I bet most Americans don't know where Michael Jordan played college ball. He famously wore his UNC shorts under his Chicago Bull shorts. Did you know that? Are you serious? Yeah, he did. Is that why his shorts were so baggy? Maybe, but he did do that. Because so, Michael Jordan, in my mind, Michael Jordan started the NBA trend of, of players wearing super baggy shorts as opposed to the wonderful tight shorts that everyone had worn right, up to that point. Right. He may very well have. So, and that's talk, because he was wearing his UNC shorts. Un- <gasps> I don't know if that's because he was, but he did do that. I, that's got to be it, John. That's got to be it. He started a whole new trend in the way you, NBA players dressed because he couldn't part with his UNC tight white basketball shorts. That's incredible. We just broke this story wide open. Yeah, we did. We should be on cereal. So do you have any memories of Jordan? I would just say, for those who don't know, Jordan played three years at UNC. He won the national championship as a freshman on a team that had Sam Perkins and Hall of Famer James Worthy. Um, and Jordan hit the game-winning shot in the national championship against Georgetown, and uh, Carolina won 63-62. to 62. Jordan was probably not the best player on that team. Um, James Worthy was. Uh, But of course, in the following years, Jordan went on to be a superstar and was the national player of the year, I believe his sophomore and junior year. And then his junior year, he declared uh, for the NBA. I don't have any memories of Jordan at UNC. My sister, Jordan came to her sixth grade class Whoa! and spoke to them about uh, geography. He was a, a geography major. Are you serious right now? Yes, I am totally serious. And he came to their class and they were able to ask questions. And Julie asked him if he was dating Whitney Houston because there was a rumor out there that he was. And um, I believe that this was actually after he had gone to the NBA. So he was like back in Chapel Hill to to you know finish his degree because he wouldn't have been dating Whitney Houston in college, uh, and I think he demurred and, and refused to to answer the question. My mom also has a Michael Jordan story. Wait, did anyone ask him any questions about geography? Probably, but some I, little kid like, excuse me, Mister Jordan, is Worcester, Massachusetts considered Metro West or Central Mass? <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, that yeah. They said Worcester, Mass was Metro West. And I took that personally. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What's your mom's Michael Jordan story? My mom's Michael Jordan story is that um, my parents were at the national championship in 1982 in New Orleans and uh, witnessed uh, Michael Jordan's game winner. And after the, the game was over, my mom says that they ran into Jordan in the team hotel in the lobby. And it Either she asked this question or someone else did, some other woman who was nearby said, were you nervous when you took the shot? And he answered, no, ma'am. He was just very, that's, she just says, I remember him just saying, no, ma'am. I mean, he was just 19 years old at that point. Now let's tie all this together because not only did your sister ask Michael Jordan if he was dating Whitney Houston. And right. not only did your parents see Michael Jordan at the 82 championship, your parents, John, also went to go see Whitney Houston in concert at the Dean Dome 
in Chapel what? Hill, North Carolina. Yes. How do you not remember this? It's the sexiest thing of all time. Your parents went to go see Whitney Houston at the Dean Dome. No. That's that's burned into my memory as the most grown-up no. thing possible. No. Yes, they did. Ask them. I gu- they did. I did. Whitney Houston didn't play at the Dean Dome. Yes, she did. And your no. parents went to go see her. Okay. Probably because Michael Jordan was secretly dating her and got them backstage passes All right. because they How much you want to bet that's not true? You can't handle the truth, John, and this proves it. Okay. I don't think I will that's bet true. anything. My parent Okay, my parents definitely did not go to concerts. Your parents definitely went to go see Whitney Houston. It's one thing I'm sure of. On here on here on this rock I stand. Athwart history. Yelling I will always love you. This is true. Your parents okay. went to go see Whitney Houston. If they deny this, are you going to say, oh, they're old and they've forgotten? Yeah, absolutely. I'll go through. I probably have it written down in my high school journal that made such an impression on me. Okay. Dear Diary, I learned the sexiest fact today. Mr. Kimball and Mrs. Kimball went to go see Whitney Houston at the Dean Dome. No. I can't wait to be a grown up and do stuff like that. I guarantee that did not happen. I guarantee it happened. Ask them. No. Ask them on tape and record it as a voice memo, and we'll start okay. next week's episode with All their right. answer. And you, All right, can, and fine. yes, it's true. You can't handle the truth. Osama yep. bin Laden has been killed. You guys, you really got to look up this Osama bin Laden clip from the newsroom. Mm-hmm. You really got to watch it. Hubba dubba. Okay. Thanks, Andrea, for that question. Thank you, Andrea. And I've heard that that the movie is actually really good. Which movie? The movie Air. Oh, the... Which is about you couldn't pay me a trillion dollars to go see a movie about a shoe company trying to make a deal with Michael hey, Jordan. That's what I said too. I was like, nah, that doesn't look like it's gonna be that great. But people I respect have said that it's pretty good. And Ben Affleck is a good director. Gone Baby Gone is a great, great thriller. That's one of my favorite, favorite movies. I'll rewatch that movie anytime. You ever seen that movie Gone Baby Gone? No, I haven't. Oh my god. Casey Affleck goes into that bar. And, and starts arguing, whoo, that'll get your adrenaline going. Okay, let's keep it moving. All right, folks, this next letter is from Chris. You'll remember that I went to this estate sale and Edward Schofield, whose estate it was, was the author of this book of letters to Ronald Reagan. And he also collected a million trillion easy listening and instrumental records from the 60s and 70s. And then amongst these records, I found a celibate rifles LP, which we all agree is one of the great mysteries of our time. Chris wrote in with a theory about how that happened. When my father was about 40 in 1979, he changed jobs and his workmates threw him a going away party. As a lifelong classical music listener, my dad greatly appreciated the gift his workmates gave him, a large box of classical LPs. At the top of the stack of classical records, they placed a joke record, a copy of the Sex Pistols classic, Nevermind the Bollocks. The joke of including the neon-hued, rudely named punk rock record amongst the Beethoven and Schubert box sets could not have been made clearer. My sister and I took great delight in playing the Sex Pistols record with our cool babysitter who knew the record intimately. Could it be that Edward Schofield was similarly given the Celibate Rifles record as a joke inclusion at the top of a stack of Mantovani records by a humor-loving friend or colleague? Chris? This is a great theory, and I love you pulling from your personal family history to come up with an explanation for how I found that Celebrate Rifles record tucked in amongst the Montavani and Engelbert Humperdinck records. Here's the issue, though. 
the celibate rifles record is is like 20 years more recent than all those other records. The timeline doesn't match up. Most of the other records in his collection are from the 50s, 60s and 70s. So I don't think it would have been included as a joke because it the you know what I mean? Unless there was time travel involved. And look, at this point, I'm open to all options. OK, it could be a time travel thing we're dealing with here. How did the celibate rifles record end up in Edward Schofield's home? How will we get to the bottom of this? Is the answer contained somehow within the pages of his masterwork, Ronald Reagan, B actor, A president? Maybe in the collected letters that he wrote to Ronald Reagan, I'll find some correspondence in which he says, Dear President Reagan, I've stumbled across the most wonderful Australian garage rock band. They're called the Celibate Rifles, which I think is a play on the Sex Pistols. Give it a moment, sir. I'm sure the, the parallel will come to you. In any event, I am... In closing, I'm enclosing their most recent LP for your delectation. Give your wife, Nancy Reagan, and her astrologer my kind regards. Sincerely, Edward Schofield. We'll never know. John, let's keep it moving. These letters are great. Charles writes, thank you for sharing your incredible swap meet fine themes for television, sports, and aerobics. I found an upload of the E.T. song on YouTube, and me and my six-year-old kid have been listening to it on heavy rotation. E.T., welcome to Panama is a thing we now say <laughs> is a thing we now enjoy saying to each other. All this talk about record finds reminded me that I once bought a record from you, Kid Midas, at a porch sale in Beacon, New York for $1. The record had quite an intriguing cover, a sort of faux naive painting of a group of some possibly drunk musicians playing in the vicinity of an elephant. The album had the curious and whimsical title Music from Big Pink. Do you remember this, David? No, I've been racking my... I mean, this is like mystery compounding mystery. Yeah. I mean, that's a very specific memory. I'm sure that they're not making it up. No, no, absolutely not. Keep going with the letter and then we'll address it. Uh, the thing is, I'm an avid music listener, but I like what I like and there are massive blind spots in my knowledge of pop music. So if you had told me that this was a well-known record by the band, it might well have resulted in some who's on first style banter. Anyway, this is to let you know that I've gotten many hours of enjoyment out of the record and have since become slightly more up to speed on the band. On that same occasion, you also sold me some pencils that you assured me were of a high quality, and so far, I have had no complaints. Hmm. My thanks to both you and John for your always edifying and entertaining podcast. Here's the thing. First of all, Charles, nice to hear from you. I have no recollection of ever owning the record in question, which is by the band, Music from Big Pink. But I must have sold it to him. I wonder if it was a group yard sale and it was a friend of mine's record that I was selling. Yeah. Memory's weird. Memory is really weird. And after COVID, I think a lot of people's memories, including my own, really got dinged because of the stress of the pandemic, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't own any records by the band. And the only things I like by the band are the song about the... Um, Take a Load Off Sally, or whatever that song's called, mm -hmm. Put the Load on Me, and then also the live band concert when Van Morrison sings Caravan and goes fucking apeshit in his little jumpsuit. Um, but I must, I, I totally believe, Charles, that this is a valid memory. I wonder, though, if it was a friend of mine's record and not my own. Or maybe I bought it and listened to it once and immediately turned around and sold it. Right. Because I don't remember living with that record or listening to it. All right. 
Next one. Okay, wow, you keep it moving. Tara writes in, this is a rift in our household that we thought you might be able to help solve. I am particularly hopeful that I am right because my mate, Andrew, and I listen to your podcast at night, every night, in fact, as we drift off to sleep, and your authority in many matters holds dominion over mine. Maybe you don't give a shit about Wordle anymore, but Andrew and I still complete it every day at the stroke of midnight. Sometimes the game's actual words are questionable, but today's concern is about the precision of its winning percentage. To date, of the 443 games I have played, I have lost three. The question on the table is this, can I get back to 100% if Wordle does not use decimals? And do you think that this is right by the numbers? or mathematically ethical, if such a concept is permitted. What do you think? So obviously with rounding, you can get to 100%. But I mean, in terms of pure math, you can't score better or worse than yourself. So there is no zeroth or 100th percentile. It's just, if you scored best out of 100 you would be in the 99th percentile because you beat 99 out of 100 scores. Do you understand? Yeah, but I don't think that's what the percentage in Wordle refers to. I don't think it means that you're better than 99%. I think it means you have solved 99% of the puzzles. It's about her own win streak. Yeah. I don't think there's any way to get to 100. I think the same thing applies. Because you always have some puzzles that you were unable to solve. Right. It will never be a true 100%. But she's asking if they don't use decimal points. So instead of you've solved 99.99999% of the puzzles, will it ever bump you up to 100%. And I have a feeling that's probably just programmed into however the New York Times decided Absolutely. To, yeah. to make Wordle work without without decimal points for win percentages. Yeah. It will, so it might be it, it would that bump after you. you do 100 more and you get them correctly, it might finally bump you up to 100%. Or maybe the programmers are like, no, never give them that satisfaction. We keep them at 99% forever. No, I think it would go, it would go to 100%. You think they'll do that? Absolutely. Terry, you'll have to make the road by walking. We're, you'll have to just keep solving and see if it ever if if it ever flips up to 100 or if you're stuck at 99% forever. I never played Wordle. Wordle's the one where you have five mystery letters and then you guess and it tells you which letters are right and then right. you guess the word and you have five yeah. tries, right? I bet you'd be really good at that. I don't know, man. It seems hard. It seems hard. I'm done with guessing. I can't handle the truth. Mm-hmm. John, we got a final letter here from Jack. He what says, can you handle the truth? Get it? Jack Nicholson wrote us a letter. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. Uh, hey, you know what? This this Tara wrote in. Tara said, I don't know if you realized when you read this, we listen to your podcast every night. In every night as we drift off to sleep, Tara, I have a treat for you. Here's a little sleep machine. A little sleep machine for you guys to drift off to sleep. This is the sound of a human heart. Here it comes. Good night, Tara. Good night, Andrew. Sweet, Sweet dreams, dreams to both of you. Right. You want to sing them a lullaby, John? 
no. No. Come on, I, d- I, d- I don't because I know Tara and I know that she's a musician and an incredible singer. Really? Um, you know yeah. these people? Who are these people? Is this your bagel friends? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. They're, they're, they're in Canada. I think she's in, I think she might be in Nova Scotia. Or you something. know like, someone who lives in Canada? I know. I, look, I just know her because we follow, I, she follows me on Twitter. And uh, yeah, she occasionally will tweet about her her shows or, or or what have you. I understand why you don't. Well, you wouldn't. You would feel weird singing a lullaby to people that you know, right? Fortunately, John, this sleep machine has a setting called Cradle, and it has a, a lullaby. Here we go. Turn it on. Here we go. Go ahead and do the credits, John. Election Profit Makers is an independent production. We welcome your support on Patreon at patreon.com slash electionprofitmakers. You must send your election prediction questions to contact at electionprofitmakers.com. And if you'd like to advertise with us, email contact at electionprofitmakers.com. Good night.